Hills. It's good to see you all. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians chapter 4. We can never forget that the book of Colossians was also a letter. This is an epistle. And what the Apostle Paul wanted when he wrote this letter was for it to be read in its entirety to the church of Colossae. And not only that, but he wanted them to pass it on to other churches to it to be read there as well. Some 2,000 years ago, that was his will. And here we are some 2,000 years later, and we are doing what God gave Paul to do with this mission. We have gone through the entire book of Colossians, and today we have reached its conclusion. And any time that we look at the scriptures, I'm always taken aback at how God's word is active It is sharper than a two-edged sword. It is living, and it speaks to us that what was going on, how God was moving in the lives of these believers, in the lives of these Christians, matters to us and tells us how we are to follow Christ as well. So when we reach something as practical as the conclusion of a letter written to a church, I believe there are treasures here, guidance from the will of God and how we are to glorify Christ and everything that we do. So let's conclude Colossians. We are going to be in Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 10. And while God gave Paul this mission to write to this church, let us never forget that it was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God that Paul wrote these words. Colossians 4, verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf and his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Let's pray as we go to the Holy Scriptures this morning. Father God, we do thank you for getting to be a part of this this chain through history that began with the church here at Colossae, that, that they were to read this letter and pass it on. And it gives us comfort knowing that our brothers and sisters through the ages, those who have faith in Jesus Christ, have sat and read this letter, thought about this letter, and tried to apply this letter, that they may live lives that glorify your Son. 
And God, I pray that that's our motivation this morning. That we, armed with faith, that this comes from you, from your mind, that we would see that there's something here for us to change our lives, to more conform to be like your son, to love each other well, to love this world well, but above all, to love you well, because we have encountered it. So be with us in this time, and Jesus, it is in your name that we pray. Amen. I think when we reach the conclusion of the book of Colossians, that we see this application clearly, and it is this. Love all people because they bear the image of God. I believe that when we examine Paul's ministry and what he's doing and how he's doing it, that there is this implication that we are compelled to love all people and that we're compelled to do so because this is tethered to the notion in Scripture that every person, every man, every woman, every child bears the image of God. For Paul mentions six men who are with him as he writes this letter, and these six will stay with him as he continues to minister where he is in prison. Six people who are by his side as he does the Lord's ministry, as he carries out God's work and the Lord's will. We see Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice. Look with me again in verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. And so we see three Israelites, and Paul refers to them as Israelites by saying they are of the circumcision. So you you see three Israelites who are with him. But then Paul mentions also three other men, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. For what does he say in uh, verse 12? In verse 12, he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear witness of him that he has worked hard for you and those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. And then he mentions Luke, verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. So you see three Jewish Israelites and three Gentiles. And the word Gentile just means any ethnic group outside of Israel. And they together are with Paul encouraging Paul, helping him to fulfill this task that God has given him. You know, the Bible is very real. The Bible does not present heroes who always get it right in this book. We see people who are flawed, like Moses and David and Peter, people who sometimes mess up. When you turn to this word, the only perfect one you see is Jesus Christ. He is the only one who lived for God in totality of everything that God called him to do. So when the Bible is very real with the flaws and the mistakes and the stumblings that sometimes happen to people in Scripture, it's also very real that the early church dealt with ethnic division, division that was present in the early stages of the church of Jesus Christ. Some, not all, 
but some felt that the Gentile ethnic groups, those outside of Israel, were somehow inferior, not having access to God as the descendants of Israel did. And some faced the temptation to treat those of Gentile ethnicities as having a second-class standing in what God was doing in Jesus Christ. We read about this in the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, Paul documented this account. In Galatians 2, verse 11, it says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? So Cephas, this is Peter, this is the apostle Peter, even struggled with ethnic hostilities of not associating with those who were not in his group at certain times. And he was confronted for this sin. In our American story, we know that racism has had a vile, wicked presence in our history, a tragic presence. In 1919, an African-American teenager, Eugene Williams, wanted to go swimming with his friends in Lake Michigan in Chicago. In an area he was swimming in, there was unofficial segregation. In a visible line where the African Americans were not supposed to swim, and it was tragically, inhumanely considered whites only. Eugene's raft drifted into the so-called whites only area of the beach, and some men started throwing rocks and stones at him, just a teenager. There were reports that he tried to make it back to the beach, but became exhausted in doing so. There were other reports that one of the rocks hit him right in the head. Regardless, that day, a teenage boy just wanting to swim, drowned, and was murdered. And this incident began the Chicago race riots of 1919, known as the Red Summer, leaving 38 people dead, 500 injured, and over one thousand families had their homes burned to the ground. Imagine that. Imagine coming home and learning that your boy just wanted to swim and have fun with his friends, and men started throwing rocks at him, literally stoning him to death, and he died in a lake and he drowned. How would you feel in that moment? The sin of racism has the potential to bring with it chaos, division, destruction, and wicked factionalism. Racism is a horrendous evil, and it plagues history. And as I mentioned, we even read of ethnic divisions in the early church, that they had to work this out, this division that was present between Jews and Gentiles. But God wanted ethnic reconciliation. God calls all people from all nations to his kingdom. 
And the Apostle Paul often reflects on this. It's present in his ministry in the closing here, but he also reflects on this deliberately in other texts. In Romans 3, verse 29, the Apostle Paul says this, Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised, and there he's talking about the Israelites, the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised, there's the Gentile races, through faith. Paul argues that God is no respecter of race when it comes to salvation. Jews, Gentiles, every race, every people, every language are invited by God to unite into his family under Christ. In fact, we see this beautiful scene of God's kingdom in Revelation 7. In Revelation 7, beginning in verse 9, it says this. In Revelation 7, verse 9, John sees this amazing occurrence. In Revelation 7, verse 9, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That is beautiful. You know what else it is? I think we can take this for granted. Don't forget that first century when Christianity was taking root. Imagine the Christians who had no power, and seemed to come from the lower classes telling others, you know, one day, around this world, every tribe, tongue, and nation, you will find people worshiping Jesus. In the first century, many would have scoffed at that idea, this powerless group that seemed to be so insignificant, that across the globe, really every nation would have people following Jesus and, and look at the breathtaking beauty of where we stand today. That when we open this word, let us not forget that around this globe, the prediction of Scripture is happening. From every tribe, tongue, and nation, we have brothers and sisters. And we live in the fulfillment of that. Let us never forget how astonishing that is. That the Bible demanded and the Bible predicted that that would happen. And we get to live in its fulfillment. Now, it will ultimately be fulfilled in the kingdom of God, but even now we see a taste of it, knowing that King Jesus this morning is being praised in the languages of this world, across the globe. And that is what the kingdom of heaven will be like. All types of people from all races, all language, coming to worship God forever. And their diversity, their cultures like language distinctions are celebrated and their unity is found in Jesus Christ, that in the Messiah, and the King of kings and Lord of lords, they are brothers and sisters. And if that is what the new heaven and the new earth will look like, and we want God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, then that is what we should look like now. And that is what Paul's ministry looked like. So despite the ethnic tensions displayed by some, you see Paul's team mentioned here, three Israelites, Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice, and three Gentiles, 
Luke, Epaphras, and Demas. Ethnic tensions that some would have loved to project on them, cast aside, pushed away, because all six men know that their chief identity is this, God has invited them to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. How can we foster and cultivate this type of worldview that all human beings are equal to resist any type of tension that would divide people, any type of clique, any type of factionalism, any type of group versus group? Well, I think to do so, we have to go back to the beginning of God's intention. In the book of Genesis, we see this. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, this is what God says of humanity. In Genesis 1, 27, Moses wrote, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. If you believe that, that every man and woman you see, every child, every youth, every human is made in the image of God, then any time you look at a human being, you know you are looking at a person who has infinite worth because they bear the likeness of God. And that can't just be something that we get in our brains. That has to be something we live out in our lives. Paul lived this out, and his team reflected this. James, the brother of Jesus, says this. In James chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, He warns us of this this hypocritical mentality we can have and how we must abandon it. For in James 3, verse 7, James says, For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. James says that if we really believe all people are made in God's image, then we should bless all people, not curse. All people, every race, every language, every ethnic distinction are made in God's image and are worthy of honor and respect. And Paul lived out a ministry that reflected that. And so should we. I do think a couple of side notes can be helpful before we leave this portion of Scripture. So let's look at this. First is on this guy, Jesus called Justice. Look with me in verse 11. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. You know, I think we take this for granted in our culture that in in Paul's culture, lots of languages and lots of cultures were interacting, and and oftentimes people had two different names. So Jesus is called Justice because this is more of a reflection of the ethnic groups that he's interacting with, that Jesus would have been his more Israelite name and Justice would have been his more Greco-Roman name. The same was true of Paul. Uh, some people think that Jesus changed Saul's name to Paul. That's, that's really not what happened when you look at the Scripture. The more he goes and he interacts with the Gentile world, this Paul name comes out. It's because Saul was more his Israelite name and Paul was more his Greco-Roman name. And I also think 
that we need to point this out before we leave this uh, portion of Scripture. Look with me in verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Church history asserts in the works of early Christians like Eusebius that Luke is the author of the gospel that portrays his name, and he is the author of the book of Acts. And we also learn right here that he was also a physician. What is interesting about Luke is in writing the gospel of Luke and in writing the book of Acts, Luke added roughly 37,933 words to the New Testament. Paul wrote 32,407. So Luke, mentioned here just briefly, is the most prolific author of the New Testament, writing roughly 27% of it, second only to Paul, who wrote 23% of the New Testament, So here you have a Gentile and an Israelite who together, their works combined, make roughly 50% of the entire New Testament. Half of the New Testament. Coming together as an Israelite and a Gentile, united to make sure Jesus is glorified in this world. But I also think we see this application from our text this morning As we continue looking at this team that Paul has formed around him, there is an important lesson from Epaphras, and it is this application. Struggle to maintain a consistent pattern of prayer in your life. You should struggle to maintain a pattern of prayer in your life. Look with me in verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Who is Epaphras? He's a convert to Christianity, and we learned in the opening of this book that he helped to plant this church in Colossae. He helped to tell them about Jesus. And how does Epaphras feel for this church that he helped to plant? He wrestles, he struggles for them to pray for them. You know, I I had a friend one time who felt like prayers should be super quick. You should say your prayer and then be done. And at the time, he was really wrestling with scriptures like this. In Matthew 6, verse 7, we read this. In Matthew 6, verse 7, it says, And when you pray... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So there was some concern here that in the pagan cultures of Jesus' time, that those who worshipped false gods believed that they could say the right words, if they could repeat the same mantra over and over, that they could kind of cast a spell over their deity and then their deity would have to do whatever they wanted. And Jesus was over-communicating. The true God is not, not, not like that at all. Yet this doesn't mean that you can't have long prayers, long conversations. It just means you're supposed to bring substance to your prayers. I think Epaphras, when we read about him in verse 12, is someone who prayed a lot and talked to God a lot struggling for this church. 
In fact, even though Jesus warns that we shouldn't pray like those who pray to false gods, he did say this in Luke 18. In Luke 18, verse 1, Jesus said this, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in the city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Jesus tells this parable of a judge that doesn't even love this woman, but eventually just does what she wants. And Jesus says, now think about this. The true judge of the universe is just and loving and cares for you. And if an unjust judge can give justice, how much more God, whose people cry out to him day and night. Jesus is, is depicting these long prayers. So what does Epaphras struggle for most in his prayers? What does he pray about a lot? Meeting with God for long periods of time, praying and asking him to accomplish. Well, look with me again in verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. Does Epaphras pray for their health? Does Epaphras pray that they'll be protected from illness? Well, I'm sure that was a part of it. But we see the defining request that Epaphras has. You know what he wants more than anything for this church? Maturity. Christian maturity. The Bible warns, if we are not careful, we can stay frozen in an immature, baby-like faith. And Epaphras is struggling against that. God, don't, don't let them stay frozen. Don't, don't let them just stay baby Christians. God, let them grow. Let them love Jesus more. And let them have a greater impact. Let them mature. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 3. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 1, Paul says to the church in Corinth, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready. For you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? What is the surest sign of Christian immaturity? The surest sign that you're stunted in your growth with Christ? It is anger and strife. It is jealousy and a constant need to argue. 
could you admit if you saw this in yourself? Maybe you would be honest and say that there are some petty arguments you find yourself getting in, skirmishes over petty issues. You know what the Bible would say if, if you're struggling with that? Grow up. Spiritually, grow up. You see, the surest sign that you're biblically maturing is in how you get along with others. If the Corinthians could firmly be rooted in the faith and, and agree to disagree sometimes and let others have their way, then Paul would have said that they're growing in Christ. But instead, he says, it's the jealousy, it's the strife, it's the group versus group, it's the fighting that shows you're frozen, you're not maturing. And Epaphras prays that doesn't happen at Colossae. If the Corinthians could have been happy, even if the church didn't do everything they wanted it to do, they would not have been immature, they would have been mature. And once again, what does Epaphras want for the Colossians? Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. The degree to which you can kindly cooperate with your brothers and sisters in Christ says a lot about your maturity in Jesus. And we should struggle in our prayers. We should make sure that we set aside time to meet with God, to talk with him and let him talk to us. We should struggle. We, we should fight for that on our calendar. That God is going to get some time alone with me. That, that I'm going to meet with the Lord. I'm going to open up his Bible. I'm going to let him speak. And I'm going to talk to him. We should struggle. Because Satan will throw everything at us. From trivial entertainment to supposed other priorities to distract us from meeting with God. But if we reflect the obedience of Epaphras, we will struggle. We will kick, fight, and scratch to make sure that God has a massive priority in our calendars. And God meets with us in prayer. We meet with him. And we do so because we want to honor him and love him. And we do so because we recognize that though we have this individual relationship with God, that we're a team with our brothers and sisters in Jesus. And we want to do what's best for the family. And what's best for the family is when the Father has the main priority in our lives. And if that's where our heart is, I think we will be prepared to make this last application as well in this text, and it is this. The last application we see here, armed with the teaching of the apostles, we must finish well for Jesus. Look with me again in verse 15. In verse 15, Paul said, give my greetings to the brothers Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains, grace be with you. I want you to notice the assumptions that Paul makes. He just assumes that these Christians are meeting together, house to house. He just assumes that they're going to value Christian fellowship. He just assumes that they're going to take this letter and read it 
not just portions of it, they're going to read it in its entirety, and that they're going to encourage other churches to do the same, that that is going to have a profound impact on what God is trying to do to them. Now, now why? Why does Paul want this letter read in their midst? Peter said this one time in 2 Peter 3.15, and remember, this is the same Peter that Paul confronted in sin one time. In 2 Peter 3.15, this is what Peter said concerning Paul. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. If someone ever confronted you in sin, called you out in front of everybody, do you think you'd be calling them beloved in front of everyone? That's what Peter's doing. Verse 16, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. That's key. The early church got it. They knew what this letter was. It wasn't just a letter. It was scripture. You see, the early church and all true churches saw the writings of Paul for what they were, Scripture, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Just like they knew when they opened Genesis that Moses was inspired by God, they saw the Apostle Paul as having that same role. And this is vital because God calls us to a course in life, a course, a path of honoring Christ, and we must know how we are to navigate that path, and it is only through the Holy Scriptures that we are able to do so. Jesus has ordained this to be our guidance. From Genesis to Revelation, the scriptures guide us into life and godliness. And Paul left these scriptures to the churches that they should achieve that very thing. And Paul also said this in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, the apostle Paul said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And only with the teaching of the apostles, only with the Bible, will you finish well the race you have been called to run for Christ. And only the teaching of the apostles could do that. But you know what? The apostle Paul wasn't content with his own race. I think sometimes we can confuse this as Christians in America. We, we can simplify the gospel to be this, just this individual relationship with me and Jesus. And I don't want to negate that. If you've come to know Christ, you have an individual relationship with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that should excite you. But I also want you to know this. You were never meant to have that individual relationship and isolation alone. You were always meant to share that with your brothers and sisters in Jesus. You're a family. You're a part of a family. You know, if, if in my family I was like, I really like my dad, but I can't stand my brothers, I wouldn't be loving my family really well. No, if I love my father, I'll love my siblings too. You see, we are called to be a part of the family of God. And yes, we have an individual relationship with Jesus Christ. 
But that relationship is always meant to be experienced as a team. And Paul is not content with finishing the race well alone just for himself. Rather, as he's running this race, he looks to others and he says, and you finish well too. I want to encourage you. Let's do this together. We see that in this text. Look with me in verse 17. Paul says, and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. He is concerned for Archippus, this other Christian that he mentions. You see, Paul wasn't content in running a race well. He had to encourage his brothers and sisters as well. And in fact, that is what this whole letter has been about. Encouraging this church and all churches in all ages to run well for Christ. In this letter that we've been going over now for months, we've seen many things. We see God's word encouraging us in the book of Colossians to ensure that Jesus is number one in our lives and that he has preeminence in everything. If you turn to the book of Colossians, you see that and we've studied that. In this book, we see that we are to love all people and proclaim the good news to all people. This book would encourage us to stand against false teaching that goes against the teaching of the apostles and other scriptures. To honor Jesus and how we act with our biological families. That's, that's in this book but also to treat your fellow Christians as family. But it is not enough just to have encountered these things and now let's just close this book and leave them behind. That's not enough. No, these truths must be a part of God's foundation in our lives. Not just to hear these words today, but to struggle and strive every moment, every day to build our lives on this book and all Scripture pointing to the Messiah, pointing to Jesus. And for the glory of the Messiah, we must finish well what God has called us to do. Verse 17, And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. May that be true of all of us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that though you do not need us, for you are infinitely powerful, you could command a bush to, to become a flame and speak your word. You, you don't need us, but still you choose to use us, and for that we are grateful. You invite us to be your sons and daughters and to be a part of this great work of exalting Jesus Christ. And God, I pray that we would fulfill the ministry that you've called us to. God, I believe that, that each and every person in this room and every person online, you, you know them and you love them and you have a task for them. You have a role for them to play in this drama that is unfolding where you are exalting and lifting up Jesus Christ above everything and, and that our lives find joy and purpose when we're wrapped up in that narrative, when our purpose in life is to make much, much of Jesus, not ourselves, but to make much of the King of kings and Lord of lords. God, we see as we conclude this epistle that the Apostle Paul, even in chains, 
sought to do that. Oh, may we do so in the freedom that we have if the Apostle Paul could do so in that setting. May we finish this race well that you've called us to, not because we have the strength, not because we have the power to do so, but because you've given us a power outside of ourselves, a wisdom outside of ourselves, and it is that of Jesus Christ. And it is only in his name that we pray. Amen. Let us stand. We will close singing the praises of the Lord. And if you need to come this day, you come as we sing.